0: It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, July 15th, 2016. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself, have I been taught rightly what the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches? I mean, it should be so basic, right? I mean, the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about you being the good samaritan doing good things for good people right Thank you for tuning in you're listening to Fighting for the Faith my name is Chris Rosebro I am your servant in Jesus Christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically and help you slow down stop open up your bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God, no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open up our Bible and compare what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolets, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying whose small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God to test and see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says when we put it back in context using sound biblical hermeneutics and exegesis. Yeah, that's the idea here. Now, today, it's sort of a light. I'm going to do a, a Rosebros ramblings, and we're going to put two things together today. And I'm actually kind of excited about it. I've been planning this for a while. Um, this past Sunday, this past Sunday in the uh, three-year lectionary, which we follow at the church that I serve, um, it was the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I got to tell you, uh, I have languished under bad preaching on this parable so many times, it's not even funny, that I I was ready to preach on this text, dying to preach on it, because it contains both law and law. And gospel, and you cannot understand it properly unless you first identify where Jesus is in this story. You are not the good Samaritan, Jesus is. And when you get that and you pay attention to what's going on, then you can see how good works work with faith. Uh huh. We are justified, declared righteous before God. By grace through faith alone, apart from works, and we do our good works because we are Christians. We love because we have been loved. We forgive because we are forgiven. Important stuff here. So, the first part of the program here, what we're going to do is we're going to listen to last, this past Sunday's sermon on the Good Samaritan, and then the Sunday school that followed, the picked up on uh, the other readings for this past Sunday from Colossians chapter one, we fill it in with parts of two and three, as well as Leviticus 18 and 19. All of these working together together to give us a whole picture, where do good works fit into the puzzle of Christianity, if you would. You're going to make an error if you make your salvation contingent upon your good works. No, your good works are contingent upon the fact that you are saved. Kind of an important distinction. So we will go ahead and get into it. Here, I'm going to read out the the passage that I'll be preaching on, and then immediately after that will be the sermon. We'll take a break after that, and when we come back, we'll listen for the balance of the program to my Sunday School lesson from this past week as well. Here we go. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spent, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the gospel of the Lord. In the name of Jesus. Beloved saints, holy ones in the Lord. I have been looking forward to preaching this text since before I became a pastor. And the reason why is because I've suffered under really bad preaching on this text. The standard way in which this is uh, preached in some churches kind of goes like this. Um, You are the good Samaritan. Go find your neighbor in need and go help him. And get busy, get cracking, get going. That's kind of to miss the whole point. What we learn from Jesus when Jesus first begins teaching in parables in the Gospel of Matthew is that, well, parables are coded stories, if you would. You're looking for God. You're looking for us. You're looking for making sure you got the right characters under the right masks, if you would. And I would say making us the Good Samaritan is, well, the equivalent of making us Jesus. And that's a grave error, an exegetical one, exegetical error that, Leads, leads to all kinds of, well, lack of comfort, if you would. So we're going to work our way back through our text today, and we'll see if we can straighten some things out. Here's how it begins. Behold a lawyer. Got to tell you, any time a story begins with the words, behold a lawyer, you know that what's coming is going to be rather interesting. So, <clears throat> behold a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. So you can tell already we've got some problems. He's going to put Jesus to the test. What does this tell you about him? Does he really have faith in Jesus? No. He's a smart fella. He knows the law really well. He's decided to step up to the plate to see if he can give Jesus a black eye, see if we can catch him in his words. That's his motivation. So he asked this question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, generally, we have a rule here, and that is, especially during Sunday school, that there are no dumb questions, okay? However, this is one of those. This is a really dumb question. Um, because an inheritance is a gift, is it not? When somebody bequeaths you an inheritance, writes you into their will, is it because you have earned that, or because they are gifting you? So already the question shows that, well, this guy probably didn't go to a good law school. So, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the, all the Jewish guys went, Oi ve. this is not going to turn out well. So Jesus said to him, and watch what Jesus does here. Jesus, by the way, knows law and gospel very well, and he knows the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not to save us. purpose of the law, especially to somebody who is arrogant, is to show them their sin. You preach the law to the proud. You preach grace and the gospel to those who are humbled by the law. So this guy is going to get the law. Watch what happens. So Jesus said to him, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. That's a lot of alls, by the way. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So let me ask you a question. How are y'all doing on the alls there? How's the love the Lord your God with all, all, all and all? Yeah, right? Oh, and love your neighbor perfectly as yourself. So that's the guy's answer. And Jesus says to him, All right, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You think he's doing it? No. And how do we know he's not doing it? Well, other passages of Scripture will help us here. Romans chapter 3, 9 through 18 will help us. Oh, and by the way, the fact that he's trying to trip Jesus up, that tells us he's not loving his neighbor as himself already, right? Because Jesus is not only his neighbor, Jesus is his God. Okay, it should tell you something about what's going on inside this guy's heart. But Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18 reads... What then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. We've already charged that all. You know what all means there, by the way? All. Tricky question. All. All, both Jews and Greeks, that's everybody, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's describing all of humanity. That's me. That's you. So, Jesus says, do this and you will live, except for here's the problem, he's not doing it, Right? purpose of the law is to show him, him sin. And then comes an amazingly awful and blind statement. The text says, but he desiring to justify himself. Desiring to justify himself? Now, I'm not a mechanic. In fact, um, I'm quite impressed with people who can actually look under the hood and know what any of those things do. Right? If I were stuck on the side of the road, well, I'm calling roadside assistance. Okay? But it always amazes me, the guy who can actually like, open up the hood of a car, pull out his flashlight, look around, and go, oh, there's your problem right there. You know, Very impressive to me, by the way. All right? So let me point this out. The fact that it says he desiring to justify himself, trust me, as a theologian, I'm going, oh, there's your problem right there. Okay, This tells me a lot. It should tell you a lot. And here's the reason why law was not given for this purpose so that you can justify yourself. Several passages will bear this out via cross-reference. Romans chapter 3, 19 through 20 reads, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being, no not one, will be justified in God's sight, since through the law... Comes the knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 3, 19 through 20 explicitly states that the primary function of the law here is to expose our sinful condition. It also has a secondary uh, function, and that is to get you to, let me put this impolitely, zip it. To shut you up. You know, when your kids, they're just prattling on and on, and you go, right? That's what the law is telling us to do. Right? Be quiet. You're guilty. But 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 no 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 no. Right? Because what happens when we do the but we usually say something really stupid like but I meant well. My heart was good. No, it really wasn't because if your heart was good you wouldn't have sinned. Don't sit there and say but my intentions were right. That's not going to help here. So the purpose of the law is to get you to be quiet. You're guilty. And it's good that you be quiet because God has something comforting to say to you. And that's the gospel. Other passages, Galatians 5, 15 through 16 says this, "...we ourselves who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, through, but through faith in Jesus Christ." So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one, not even one person, will be justified. And justified there is a very important word, and it means to be declared righteous, found not guilty. No one is going to be justified before God by works of the law. You see, this lawyer went to a really bad law school, thinks he's going to be able to justify himself. Galatians three ten through 14 also says, All who rely on works of the law, well, they're under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continue to do them continuously. That's my translation of what's going on in the present tense verbs there. So now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who lives who does them shall live by them. Christ, he has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Parting shot in our cross-references, Galatians 2, 20-21. I have been crucified with Christ, the Apostle Paul writes. It's no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see... He desiring to justify himself has missed the whole point of the law. Right? And unfortunately, there are many today who are attempting this same feat. You might as well try swimming to Hawaii. You ain't going to make it. Right? So going back to our text, he desiring to justify himself, that's his motivation for saying what he's saying now, said to Jesus, Who's my neighbor? And you can almost kind of see the swagger in the question. Well, who's my neighbor? Right? All right. And this is where it gets really interesting. So Jesus decides to whip out one of his parables. And this is a zinger. We're going to unpack this. But first, let's read the parable itself. And then we'll work our way back through it. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So there's our story. Now let's work our way through it. A little bit of geography here. Um, I've never been to the Holy Land, but I've traveled there often on the, via the Internet and looked at places using other people's vacation photos. It's a very inexpensive way to take a vacation. Just want to let you know that. Okay, And I know from other people's vacation photos and from Google Earth and what I know of the Holy Land that Jericho is, well, not at the same elevation as Jerusalem. Jerusalem is quite higher up in elevation than Jericho itself. And the road from Jerusalem to Jericho historically is known to be a treacherous road, and you journey down. So Jerusalem's up here, Jericho's down here, and that road, lots of winding curves and switchbacks and things like that. And if you've ever seen video of people on a tour in the Holy Land in a bus while they're on that road, they note the fact that the absolute feeling of terror while they look outside of their bus window and they can't see any road, all they see is Ravine and cliff, right? Okay, so keep this in mind. The going down part's important. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers, which was common back then, who stripped him, beat him, departing, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Which direction was the priest heading? He was heading to Jericho from Jerusalem, which means he's probably finishing up his priestly duties there in Jerusalem and heading home. Well, that being the case, keep this in mind. The law can always accuse you, but the law will never help you obey it. The law will never lift a finger to help you at all. So here the law, the man visibly representing the law, sees there in the road a guy stripped naked, a little bit of garment theology going there, Half dead, bleeding, maybe he's dead, you know, don't, can't tell from the distance, right? And what does the law do? Nothing. Keep in mind, you know, the law very specifically says that if you touch a dead body, you're unclean, and there's a whole cleaning ritual that you have to go through, right? And, well, back then, Jews might be willing to become unclean for their cousin Shlomo, But they may not be willing to become unclean for a perfect stranger. So what does the law do? Walks, sashes over to the other side of the road and passes by at a safe distance in order to not become unclean. A Levite, when he came to the place, we'll just imagine he's heading up to Jerusalem, saw him for the same reasons, passes by on the other side. All those bound by the law are incapable of showing mercy, are they not? So now the story gets really interesting. But a Samaritan, the text says. Let me help you out here. I don't know if you've noticed, but on the news, racial tensions in the United States seem to be, well, boiling over again. I haven't seen stuff like this since I was a kid. In the days when they had forced busing and forced uh, desegregation in the schools. I remember that when I was a kid. And the racial tensions were high. Well, they're running high again right now. And you've got people who are white hating black people. You have black people now racially hating and showing prejudice towards white people. So let me kind of give you an example of what the words but a Samaritan mean in the context of somebody talking Jew to Jew at this time. All right? This would be the equivalent of, well, Jesus tells a story, there was a white cop. And he's telling this story to somebody who is into the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Or you can say, well, but a, and then you can say African American. And it's in the context of talking to guys who are in the KKK. That's what we're talking about here. This is salacious. And who is this Samaritan, by the way? The Samaritan is Jesus, Jesus is hiding in the mask of the Samaritan in this story. And the details make that perfectly clear. So Jesus in the story covers himself, well, in a hated racial character, a Samaritan. And that's important. The Samaritan is not bound by the Mosaic Covenant. He's free to help. So... A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, I know your text says he had compassion. I think a better way to render the Greek word there is his guts were wrenched. Coming around the bend, he sees what looks like a corpse. You can just see him. It's like he drops everything. And he immediately runs to him. Checks to see if he has a pulse looks him over to find out where he's bleeding and what's going wrong, right? He says this, he binds him up, binds up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. A little bit of note here, there's just wisps, hints of the incarnation here. Because, you know, over and again at Christmas time, we have pictures of Jesus, you know, in his mother's tummy, riding into Bethlehem and going to the inn, and there's no room for them at the inn, right? Kind of a wisp here of the incarnation. Went and bound up his wounds, brought him, took care of him, took him to an inn to take care of him. Next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This begs the question, who is this guy lying Beaten, half dead, naked, having everything taken from him on the road to Jericho. Who is it? It's you. It's me. This is how Jesus finds us. And the reason for this is simple, because this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden and the deception of the devil. The robbers are, well, it's the devil and his demons. All of humanity was in Adam when humanity fell and disobeyed God. And this is our state before God. Bloodied, beaten, robbed, naked. Right? Totally helpless. Totally unconscious. And what does Jesus do? He finds us in this state. And what does he have on us? Mercy, grace, compassion. He picks us up. And He brings us to the inn. And where is this inn? It's right here. This is the inn. Who's the innkeeper? That's me, your pastor. And every faithful pastor who preaches the gospel. And I can tell you this, as the innkeeper, that two denarii that Christ has given me, That's His Word, His body and blood, the waters of baptism. It's more than enough to bind up your wounds. It's more than enough for me to be able to care for you and nurse you back to health. What a merciful, kind, and gracious Savior we have. And notice here, He says, and when I come back, even alluding to Jesus' second return, when I come back, I'll repay you. See, this story isn't primarily about you doing anything first. This is about what Christ has done for you. And the wonderful thing about this is because we are saved by substitution, Christ becomes our substitute, dies in our place. When Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus allows himself to be handled by the robbers who strip him naked, beat him senseless, nail him to a cross, and there he dies for you and for me. It's an amazing story when you think about it. It's all about grace, mercy, compassion, true love, and notice how love springs into action. It's one thing to say, well, I love you, I care about you. It's a whole other thing to show it with action. And God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet bruised, bloodied, beaten, unconscious sinners, Christ dies for us. So then Jesus asks this question Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the attorney can't even say the word Samaritan. You can almost see him answering with gritted teeth the one who showed him mercy. Right? Mercy. And then Jesus says to him, You go. And you do likewise. And this fits perfectly with Jesus' new command of the new covenant. As I have loved you, love one another. How has Christ loved you? By having mercy on you. By forgiving you. By binding up your wounds. By not retaliating eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth but instead taking all the blows so that he can serve and love. And so as Christ has loved us, so we are called here by this text to go and do likewise and love everyone else. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. That's the sermon. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we will continue with my Sunday School lesson. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pyre Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of, well, this program with a Sunday School lesson on good work. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
1: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> don't give up bring up the are yo ho yo ho what virus right for me we've started to go for we go Max Holland's Bad Cage Theater presents Church Day Select My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Kwando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow, That was pretty good. Now, listen everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're gonna learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're gonna learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. You think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church.
0: Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that Jesus is the Good Samaritan, which is a good thing to think, by the way. It's exactly how the Church Fathers taught this parable. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to and to the world. You can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website. FightingForthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you choose. That's right. You get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at nine dollars ninety five cents a month. After that, Gunner's Mate, twenty four ninety five a month. Master Gunner, forty nine ninety five a month, and Quartermaster, ninety-nine ninety five a month. For everybody who joins our crew moving forward, we will send you, upon you joining our crew, we will send you a Pirate Christian uh, bumper sticker as well as our die-cut Pirate Christian Cairo flag sticker as our way of saying thank you for joining our crew. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 13344 grand forks north dakota zip code 58208 and let me thank you for your support we truly cannot do what we're doing here without it all right here is uh, the next thing we're going to this is my sunday school lesson from this past sunday talking about how to rightly understand the relationship of justification by grace through faith alone, and good works, which are so clearly taught in Scripture. Here's my lesson on Colossians 1, part of 2, part of 3, and Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 through 5, and uh, a large part of of Leviticus chapter 19. (sighs) Here we go. And Lord Jesus, as we open your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand it. For your word reveals that it is through the Holy Spirit that we are able to understand your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to do a little solo lesson today. We're going to pause from the book of Genesis. And I really wanted to key in one of the things I love about the lectionary is that the lectionary forces us to cover all of the major doctrines of Christianity in the course of one year. And you can tell today that, based upon our lectionary readings, the topic of good works came up. And we will not shirk away from the topic of good works. And unfortunately, there's a lot of bad preaching on good works. And when I was in evangelicalism, when I was a Nazarene, Uh, The gospel wasn't preached to me as a Christian. It was preached to people who were just making a decision to become Christians or something like that. So if you happen to wander into a church, into our church, on an evangelism Sunday, you would hear the gospel. But if you had been there for any length of time, it wasn't being preached to you. It was being preached to the unbeliever. And the attitude was, well, now that you've made the decision, you've prayed the sinner's prayer that it's up to you to now get busy and move on from the milk, which is the gospel, to the meat, which is all about your obedience, and keeping yourself pure and holy so that you can make it to heaven. Um, I remember Bill Cosby, before you know he was a scandalous character, but he used to tell an interesting story about his parents and how his parents treated his children differently than how he was treated when he was growing up. And if you know how the story goes, uh, Bill Cosby's children were treated very well by his parents. You know, his mom and dad would give them money and give them gifts and give them all the things that they were never allowed to eat when he was growing up. And Bill Cosby's quip was something to the effect of, they're old, they're trying to get into heaven. (laughs) Okay? And as funny as that is, as a line... I think it actually makes an interesting point, and that is is that oftentimes Christianity can go malignant and it can go malignant in several different directions but a very common way in which Christianity goes malignant is through a false understanding of good works you know the gospel becomes your entrance ticket into Christianity and now we've got to send you to god's gym and you 've got to be busy becoming a hard-body Christian, you know, with good spiritual good work muscles and things like that. And if you don't, if you don't, well, you may not even make it to heaven. That's how we think. And there's a reason why we think that way, and this is, I'm gonna give you a Latin term. The term is opinio legis Opinio legis, I know Latin phrases can have the tendency to cause some of your eyes to glaze over, but I think this is an important one. Opinio legis is talking about the opinion of the law, and the book of Romans explains to us how God has written his law on the hearts of all mankind. Sinners, Christians, unbelievers, everybody has the law of God written on their heart, and you can see this kind of playing out in popular culture. Everybody has a concept of conscience. You know, somebody will sit there and be having a conversation with another person at work, and the conversation goes, yeah, you know, I did this awful thing. My conscience just got the best of me, and so I had to go and apologize. I felt terrible, right? Well, where did that come from? Where did this idea that I did something wrong and I felt terrible? And it's really deep inside of us come from. Then in the movies, we all know how the conscience gets played out in the movies. You got the white angel on this shoulder and the, you know, the devil on the other. And they're whispering in your different ears trying to get you to do you know, one thing or another, right? That's how they picture and portray the conscience. But the thing is, is that because we have the law written on our hearts, when religion goes bad... All right, and it's self-made religions. All religions are the same in this sense that are self-made. They all are religions of the law. You follow this program, you earn these brownie points with whatever deity or spirit thing that exists, and then the reward is heaven, paradise, nirvana, you know, name whatever the reward is. But it's all up to you to get to that point by following this program, right? This is what Islam's all about. Why are there so many guys blowing themselves up? Well, because somebody has changed the definition of martyr in the Quran to mean You can be a martyr now by committing suicide. And there's promise. That's, that's a sure and certain. I mean, if you're a martyr for Islam, that's a sure and certain promise that you will have paradise and a whole lot of virgins. You know, the virgins are like the icing on the cake, apparently. But, <laughs> okay, right. But that's what they, that it's, it's a law-based religion. Mormonism, law-based religion. Roman Catholicism is a law-based religion. They deny salvation by grace through faith alone. And just so you don't think that they're not the, they're they only ones getting it wrong in this sense, there's a lot of evangelical preaching and, you know, kind of movements, sub-movements within evangelicalism that do the same thing. And it often goes along the lines of this, all right? People will know we're Christians because Now, let's do this biblically. What does Scripture say? They will know you are Christians by what? Love. Now, that's something very important, and we're going to key in on this toward the end of the lesson. But that gets changed. That gets changed in a lot of evangelical preaching, too. They will know we are Christians because we don't dance. That could just mean you're Norwegian. Okay. 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 They will know we are Christians because we never touch alcohol. Well, that's actually not a sign of being a Christian. Jesus drank. All right? So the reason why somebody may not be drinking is just because, well, maybe they're an alcoholic and they can't do so. Okay? So what they'll end up doing is they create their own set of laws. They'll know we're Christians because we never watch television. Or they'll know we're Christians because we never go to movies that are rated more than PG. Right? Now, there is a sense, biblically, where true bona fide sins, it says that the world will wonder why we don't participate in their debaucheries. There is a sense in which that's correct. But when it, what, what they end up doing is they absolutize things that we have freedom in as Christians. Right? You have freedom as a Christian to either marry or not marry. You have freedom as a Christian to enjoy alcohol or not. And no one should judge you either way. All right, what you do not have the freedom to do is, well, get drunk. Now, smoking is another hot issue, all right, but technically you, you still are going to have the freedom to do that. But what ends up happening is, is that they create a sub list. Rather than saying they'll know we are Christians by our love, it's they'll know we're Christians because we don't do these things. And then when you go to church, you're not hearing the gospel. What you're hearing is you got to, You gotta, you gotta. Here's the strategy, so that you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. And at the end of it, at the end of every service, you leave with a long to do list of things that you've got to do. Okay, huh? Or can't? Well, you're supposed to do it. Okay, but here's here's how this plays out. Okay, so you got the week, you got the list from last week, and you got all these things I got to do to be make myself holier. You show up the next week, you get another list. You show up the next week, and now you've got three lists. And you're not keeping any of them. But this is where it gets really nasty. And I've been there and done this. Nobody wants to say, hey, you know, that list we got three weeks ago, I'm not pulling that off. So here's what happens. You get into the church parking lot or you come into the fellowship hall. People are gathered around having a cup of coffee. And somebody will say, you know... Man, I love that sermon from three weeks ago. It just changed my life. I mean, once I started applying all those things, whoa, let me tell you, things got really better for me. Okay? So somebody kind of starts off like that. Well, not to be embarrassed because you know you're not pulling it off. You say, oh, I know, it changed my life too. (laughs) Yeah, just not being specific. It made me miserable. Okay? (laughs) So what ends up happening socially in church is that people then begin to apply fresh paint to a facade. Rather than saying, I'm a sinner, and I'm struggling with sin, and I need to be forgiven, because remember, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. What happens then is is that where the law is preached wrongly, and the gospel is withheld, and good works and faith are incorrectly coupled together, what ends up happening, it creates a subculture then of self-righteousness that becomes the predominant culture. Does that make sense? Okay. So, And the reason why this happens it's so easily for us is because we have the law written on our hearts. We all have a standard that we, we share in common, and that's God's law. Which is why when you sit there and you look at the other religions of the world and you look at their moral codes, it's like... Dang, they like have the same moral code we do. Right, because experientially we all know the things we ought not to do, right? But the thing is, is that, like I said in the sermon this morning, the law was not given so that you can make yourself righteous so that you can earn salvation. You are given salvation as a gift, which begs the question then, why do we do our good works? If I'm saved and totally forgiven for everything I do... Why shouldn't I go party like it's 1999 in Tahiti? That's kind of the, that's a logical question. And what's funny is that oftentimes, especially on social media or via email, when people are hearing the gospel for the first time preached to Christians through myself and others, I'll get emails or comments on social media. It's like, you must hate God's law. You're, you're an antinomian. No, really, I'm not. You know, I'm not. And so we're going to talk about how to put this all together because our pericopes today help us with that. So we'll be talking about faith and good works, but we're going to start by running the verbs at the tail end of our epistle texts. If you want to open up to Colossians chapter 1, I want to show you some things. Colossians 1, I'll start at verse 9. Keep this in mind, the Apostle Paul was a self-righteous Pharisee for a very long time. If anybody would have been tempted to teach the false doctrine of antinomianism, it would have been Paul. But you'll notice, coming out of legalism, he doesn't go into the opposite ditch. He doesn't. Here's what he says, starting at verse 9. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with, all, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So you'll notice that there is an expectation in Scripture that Christians, people who have faith, are to walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord, bear fruit in every good work, and increase in the knowledge of God. Real quick, I don't know if any of you have ever heard this false dichotomy, but if you ever hear it, you know it's false. There are those who in Christianity think doctrine doesn't matter. People who read the Bible a lot are somehow dangerous. And here's how it works. Well, they have head knowledge. We have heart knowledge. False dichotomy. Okay? The Scripture here says increasing in the knowledge of God. And where's the only place you can go to increase in the knowledge of God? Scripture, right? May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father. And here's where we're going to run the ver- verbs. Make sure I have them up far enough in my Greek text. All right. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Now, this is an important part of understanding good works 101. Who is it that has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light? Was it you who qualified you? The Father. Okay, giving thanks to the Father. He is the one who has qualified you. Present tense or past tense or future tense? Past, right? The Greek word, um, hikiano, uh, it literally, in the, um, the, the, uh, the form it appears in, is aorist active participle. It's a past tense thing. So he is the one who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Here's another verb. He has delivered you. He has delivered you. Who's done the delivering? God has. If God has qualified you and God has delivered you, Are your good works the thing that are necessary for you to do in order to be qualified to have eternal life? No. If God is the one who has qualified you and he's the one who's delivered you, then that means the reason why you do your good works is because you are saved, not in order to be saved. As soon as you are doing your good works in order to be saved... You're now the one trying to qualify yourself, and you are on extremely shaky ground. And see, that's kind of the problem, and many preachers won't talk about it explicitly like this, but they preach in such a way where the impression that is given is that by your good works, you qualify yourself. By your good works, you deliver yourself. So here we have a wonderful passage that talks about our good works but the verbs make it clear that we're doing these good works because we have been delivered and we have been qualified. And I know I overuse this metaphor, but it's worth repeating. We do what we do because we is what we is. Cows moo because they're cows. Cats meow because they're cats. Christians do good works because they is Christians. And if you flip it, you literally run the risk of shipwrecking your faith. It's and yeah, that's bad. And you glorify in what you do and you pronounce. Yep, let me give you an example of that biblically, Luke chapter 18, famous parable that Jesus tells, Luke 18, no I'm going to show you something because I'm going to show what what this looks like, Luke 18 verse 9, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Now, real quick here, this kind of gets into another category. I'll do a little bit of work here. All right. Have any of you ever seen carnivorous apple trees? Carni- well, Apple trees that eat their own apples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. You had a dream about that last night. Okay. You may want to go see your doctor. Okay. <laughs> Who benefits when an apple tree produces apples? The apple tree, or you. We do right, all right. In the same way, your good works. When you rightly understand what it is that brings them about, you understand this: they are not for you. They n- not at all. Every yeah. It'll. I promise. They generally do make you feel good. Okay. Probably tired and exhausted, but you feel good, like that good, satisfied feeling. But all of your good works are for your neighbor. As soon as your good works are for you, they cease to be good works. All right. And here's what I mean by that. I'm going to go out and I'm going to feed the poor today. Oh, I'm going to give money to the poor and maybe even kiss a pig or two. (laughs) Inside joke. Right? And the reason I'm doing it is because I know that when God sees me doing that, I'm going to get another lane on my Olympic-sized swimming pool in my mansion in heaven. I mean, I can't wait to see what this thing is decked out in in all of my rewards because of how good I was. Is that a good work? No. How about this? I have to do this good work because if I don't, I won't hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's still doing your good work for yourself. All right? In order for a good work to truly be a good work, it must be for the benefit of your neighbor and your neighbor alone. It is not for you. And that is only possible if you believe you are presently, currently saved, currently qualified, currently forgiven, currently in God's grace and mercy. If you don't get that, you are incapable of doing a good work. And this guy bears this out. So here we got, oh, and by the way, as soon as you're doing your good works for yourself, you know what that has a tendency to do? Make you look down on everybody else. I'm super holy. What if, what if someone? The Book of James comes into play here. James makes it very clear. Just as the body that is not breathing is dead, faith without works dead. It may be, though, listen to what I'm saying here, it may be the reason they're saying that is because they've been so badly bloodied and beaten by bad preaching, they don't even want to try anymore. Because every time the talk of good works comes out, it sends them into PTSD, throws them right back into that mindset, oh, I'm doing this in order to be saved. Okay. In that case, you need to carefully preach the gospel to that person. So Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, the unjust, oh, I'm so good or adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. Oh, man, God, am I amazing. I'm the head. I'm not the tail. I'm the apple of your eye. (laughs) I know that every morning when I wake up, you smile upon me and say, oh, my sunshine has woken up. (laughs) Let me just give you a squinch, right? Huh? (laughs) I fast twice a week. Other people just do it only once. I do it twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Oh, I'm so amazing. (laughs) Now, here's the awful thing about this. If you're really honest with yourself, you've done this. I've done this. The punchline, though, is wonderful. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast, God, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. God, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, declared righteous rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So as soon as you think you are the apple of God's eye because you are doing all this stuff, that is the theology of glory, the theology of self-glory. You are exalting yourself. and God promises, almost threatens practically, He will humble you. Christianity begins and stays on your knees. So notice the context here, the guy who's doing all this righteous stuff, right? It's misunderstanding, really, what the law is about. Let's fast forward into Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to show you, we'll start with a clear gospel text, preached to, written to Christians. If you don't think Christians need to hear the gospel, then why did the Apostle Paul write this? Okay? Okay. Christians need to hear the gospel, like daily. We must hear this. So Paul writes, verse 8, chapter 2, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Elemental spirits of the world. Important phrase, he'll define it in a minute, so just hold that thought. What is an elemental spirit of the world? Not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, another important note here. Head of all rule and authority. That word head, hold on to it. We're going to need it a little bit down in the text. Okay. In him also you were circumcised. Yes, that includes you women. With a circumcision made without hands. This is Jesus' circumcision of your heart by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ and here's where it happened to you having been buried with him in with Christ in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead so your hearts were circumcised by Christ you were buried and raised with Christ in your baptism verse 13 and you who were dead watch the verbs You were dead. Past tense. Okay? You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Watch the noun. God made alive together with Christ. You were dead. Who made you alive? God. Right? You didn't make you alive. God made you alive. Together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Another important statement here. Trick question, what does all mean there? All. Very good. Smart students. Right, it does mean all. This is an important text for you to keep in mind. How many of your sins did Jesus die for? Some of them or all of them? All of them. Every single one of them. In fact... You've been forgiven for the sins you're going to commit tomorrow. All of them, not some of them. But this doesn't give you the license to go out and live like hell, right? And he, there's an explanation as to how this has happened. So you, have been, you were dead, you were made alive, God made you alive, and he has forgiven all of your trespasses. And here's how he did it, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Think of this as the cosmic sin spreadsheet. So every one of your trespasses gets recorded in the spreadsheet. Here's what Jesus does. He hits the print button, waits a couple years, (laughs) has to refill the toner many times a day. (laughs) Okay. Then he takes the phone book that this thing is, right? And he literally, watch what it says. He cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You can almost picture it. So he takes one of the nails that was in his hands. He takes one of those nails, still has the blood on it, so he can write on this spreadsheet. Debt paid in full. Takes the whole thing and knocks it right up to the cross. It's done. The whole record of all of your debt. Bless you. The whole record of all of your debt canceled by what Christ did on the cross. Well, if that's the case, then our salvation is not earned by us, is it? Not at all. So any discussion of good works that comes in the sentences that follow cannot overthrow this reality. There isn't a single sin that you have committed that Satan will be able to stand as your accuser on the last day and say, yeah, but she did this, but he did that. It's all accounted for all bled for, all died for, debt paid, totally in full, right? By doing this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Think of these as the demonic forces, the ones that bloodied and beaten us and left us on the road dead, right? He disarmed them, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So all of that is true. You're forgiven. You've been made alive. God's qualified you. God has done all of this for you free. Gratis. Now watch, therefore. Good saying I hear from time to time. Whenever you see a therefore in the text, biblical text, ask what it's there for. Right? So notice the therefore. The therefore follows the clear preaching of the gospel to Christians. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Oh. You mean I don't have to worry about eating a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich? <laughs> Thank God, no. My cardiologist might have issues with it, but, okay. As far as how we treat each other, if you eat bacon, that's your, you can eat Bacon. If you don't want to eat bacon and be vegan, you can do that too. You have the freedom. You want to drink wine with your meal? You can do that. You don't want to drink wine? You're free to do that too. Let no one pass judgment on you in regards to these things, at least as Christians. If someone comes to you and says, oh my goodness, you're you're eating bacon? You're probably not even a Christian. Here's the irony that person probably isn't because they don't understand that we're saved by grace. You see? Right, not by our food. Okay? Another issue. Don't let anyone pass judgment with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Old Covenant festival days? Sabbath. Right? Sabbath's the day of rest. Somebody says, You you have church on Sunday? Sunday? you've got to keep the Sabbath. I'm not going to let you pass judgment on me regarding these things. We can meet on Sunday. We can meet on Saturday. We can meet on Thursday at 2 in the morning if we wanted to. We are free in regards to these things. And the reason for this, these are shadows of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Christ has already come. All of these things, the Mosaic food laws, new moons, Festivals, the Sabbath, those are all type and shadow pointing to Christ. Watch what he says here. Let no one disqualify you. Important word. Disqualify you. Let no one disqualify you. Yeah, you can be disqualified. How? Well, by insisting on asceticism. Now that's a $5 word. By the way, an ascetic is not something that makes your mouth taste minty fresh. <laughs> an ascetic is somebody who harshly treats their body. Think monk in a monastery beating himself with a whip. Uh huh, right. So, don't let anyone disqualify you insisting on asceticism or the worship of angels or, watch this, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. All of these things take your eyes off of Christ, and here's what he says. So, disqualify you by insisting on asceticism, the harsh treatment of the body, the worship of angels or dreams and visions. These people are puffed up, puffed up without reason by their sensual minds. And not holding fast to the head. Who did Paul say was the head just a few sentences before? Christ. So the idea here is is that as Christians, we hold to Christ. We look to Christ and what he has done for us. The aesthetic is the guy who's out there trying to beat his body and treat it harshly in order to earn God's favor. In order to be holy. Holy. And the reason he's doing that is he doesn't trust the Word of God that says you already are holy. You've been made holy. Does that make sense? Not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died, did you die or not? Yeah. It was really fun. I... Um, in our, one of our trips, we had the opportunity to baptize a couple who had spent some time in a cult. And we sent them their baptismal certificates, you know, letting, you, know letting, you know, just so they had them. And he emailed me back this morning. He says, Pastor Roseboro, we received our death certificates in the mail. Thank you. That's right. Your baptismal date is your death date. We're just waiting for your body to catch up. So if If with Christ you died, yes you did, if you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still living in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Right? So isn't it fascinating that there are movements and denominations within Christianity that are following the elemental spirits of the world? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is how you're holy. Treat your body terribly, right? Yeah, and this verse says all of this stuff is self-made religion and it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And I'll tell you this. Done what I've done out in public long enough, I've, I've got some pretty nasty stories that have been emailed to me. And I'll tell you this. The churches that preach the loudest all law are the ones who are hiding the greatest sins within their ranks. It's true. Yeah. It's sad, but it's true. Because none of this has any power at all to produce true Christian sanctification and a life that is holy. So Paul, in connecting this now, has ruled a few things out. Good works, it doesn't go this route. It goes a different route altogether. So we now walk into chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, have you? Yes. You've been buried with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In some senses, this is eschatological. This is talking about the hope that we have as Christians, the hope of a new earth, of seeing the face of Christ, of hearing from Him, well done, good and faithful servants, of actually worshiping Him while seeing Him. These are the things that we hope for and aspire to. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. You have. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. When God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. So notice here, we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection, because of that, we've died, and our lives are hidden with Him. This is a true reality, and this is the reason why we do our good works. Can people who are dead in trespasses and sins do the good works that Scripture requires? No. Pagans do what pagans do, because pagans are pagans. So if we elect the right guy, we don't have that choice this year, but if we elect... <laughs> If we elect the right guy Right? If we elect the right person, how are they I self-identify? Right? If we elect the right person, will that finally make it so America will be a godly nation? You guys sound so cynical. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're right. OK? How is it, then, that we can turn this country around? Answer, preach the gospel. Pagans can't bear the fruit of the Spirit. And here we've got a growing percentage of pagans in our, in our population as Christianity has literally walked off the evangelism battlefield. We cannot legislate our way to the fruit of the Spirit in our society. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear. No hesitancy here. No hesitancy whatsoever. This is a foregone conclusion. When Jesus appears, you're appearing with Him. Notice the confidence. Notice the certainty. Notice the assurance that this is true for these Christians, and it's true for you as well. And this is what is the real engine behind true good works. So because of this, because you will appear with him, therefore put to death what is earthly in you. Ah, you mean Christians mortify their sinful flesh because they're Christians. Right. And here's what's earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Here's where a little comparative work is going to be helpful. I want to show you a text in Isaiah chapter 14. You want to know what the devil's like? Isaiah chapter 14 gives us a wonderful, awful, terrible picture of the devil How you are fallen, Isaiah fourteen twelve, from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I am. Will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Satan has a God complex, does he not? Sin is being bent in on yourself. That's the picture of it. So, coming back then to the things of the earth that we're to put to death sexual immorality. What is that? Utter selfishness when it comes to the gift that God has given us. God has given us this gift, and He's put limits on it. It is only to be used between a man and a woman who are married. But we don't want to wait. Nope, we're going to do things our way. We're going to have multiple partners, have some booty calls, friends with benefits. That's all selfishness. That's being bent on yourself in a horrible way. Do you care about your partner in that type of relationship? No, the only person you care about is you. All of this is demonic. It's satanic, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness. I want what my neighbor has. All of this is being bent in on yourself. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. Important word here. Peripateo is the Greek word, and this is a Hebraism pulling in the Hebrew word halach, which means to walk or how you conduct your life. So watch what he's saying. In these two you once conducted your life. I think that's a better way of saying it. Because that's what he's referring to. When you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Now notice, what is, what is Paul assuming here? Is Paul assuming that now that you've become a Christian, you no longer have a sinful nature or you still have one? Exactly. If you didn't have a sinful nature, would it be necessary for him to talk like this? Right. OK, so that's why we know that we still have a sinful nature to deal with, because as Christians, we live in the world of the now and the not yet. We are saved. And yet we still have a sinful nature. We've been regenerated, born again, and we still have our dead Adam. Being a Christian is for the birds. OK, it's just, It just feels like you're at war with yourself. It feels like multiple personality disorder. Because there's this part of me that just wants to do all this great stuff. And then my sinful nature goes, what about me, 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 me? Right? And it's just ugly and it's awful. So you must put these all away. Put these away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, notice what it says here, Good works are because you are already God's chosen one. You are already holy. You are already beloved. You see the difference? When you're doing your good works so that you can become holy, so that God will finally pick you, or because you want God to be, think that you're one of his beloved, you've missed the whole point. You already is all of that in Christ. So as God's chosen ones, as God's holy ones, as His beloved, put on a compassionate heart. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Put on patience. When the world hears a list like that, what do they think? Weakness you got to look out for number one, right? No, you don't. God's looking out for you, so you go look out for your neighbor. You see how that works? Bearing with one another. Bear with one another. But, Pastor, you don't understand just how ornery he is. You don't understand how cranky she can be. No, really, I do. Bear with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. See the difference in the lists? One is satanic, bent in totally on yourself. This one, where does self go? It, it disappears. True Christian sanctification more and more looks like a complete loss of self. It is like your life on a daily basis. You are a drink offering. And every day, God is pouring you out for your neighbor's sake. And then He forgives you of your sins. And at night, He refills you. And then He pours you out again. They will know we are Christians by our love. The only way that is possible is by us understanding we are holy. We are forgiven. We are beloved in God's sight. We are chosen. Now I can do my good works totally for my neighbor. Now there's no need to lie about somebody. I can go and help them, befriend them, protect them, and their character. Right? This is something totally different. You want to see this in the United States of America? Preach Christ. Tell them about the love of God and how He has bled and died for their sins. Call them to repent because here's the thing we all know this experientially. We've lived in that other list, right? And you know how awful it is. There's no peace in that. There's only a wake of destruction behind you in a life like that. This, on the other hand, I want to live in that neighborhood. That's the church I want to go to. A church where the people don't think about themselves. All they think about is the other person. And they're rich in good works. Above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the word of God, the written word of God. Teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns. That's right, hymns are a good thing. And spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, here's that word. Submit. Right? Yeah. But watch this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. In other words, love them the way Christ has loved the church. Children, obey your parents in everything. Okay? For this pleases the Lord. Fathers don 't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants these are slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. now there's a teaching that is running rampant throughout Christianity today, and I call it the dream destiny thingy doctrine, okay and this is a, this is a horrifyingly awful doctrine, and here 's kind of how it works: God has made you. For a purpose. He has a dream destiny. That he had in his heart. That he's been dreaming about you. Since before the world was made. Right? And what you need to do. Is you need to ask God. And make yourself worthy. For him to reveal this dream destiny for you. And believe me. It's it's so much more. Than you can ever dream or imagine. You might be working right now. Well. At Walmart. But trust me you're going to be the princess of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's right. (laughs) Okay. That's okay. I, I saw that segment of the Barbie movie too. Anyway, this is how this talks. This is how this doctrine goes, right? This doctrine is not at all biblical. And it teaches you to despise the place where God has currently placed you to serve the neighbors that God has put in front of you. Where do we serve our neighbors? Answer, in the vocations God has put us into. Are you a wife? Are you a father? Are you a mother? Are you a husband? Are you a child? Are you a slave? Huh? It's whatever. So here's the thing. You do your good works wherever God has put you. Right? I'm a father. My good works, my wife, my children. Okay, I'm a pastor. My good works right here. Right? I'm also a citizen of the United States. I can do some things there as well. Right? Wherever you are, do your good works for your neighbor's sake. So if you're a mom, that might include dirty diapers. If it's a dad, that includes dirty diapers. (laughs) Right? This is a good work. These are good works. If you're a slave, you can do your good works as a slave. I don't even own myself, but I'm going to go ahead and obey my master as if he's Jesus himself. And you know what this text is saying? God sees that and sees that as a good work. The bond servant, the slave, is not told, don't worry, you have a dream destiny thingy and God's going to make you the king of the world. No, no. This makes it so that all of our work, it's holy. Whether it's taking out the garbage, mowing the lawn, paying our taxes, disciplining our children, disciplining our children. (laughs) You see what I'm saying, right? When you see them for what they are, you no longer feel like you lack good works. So many times when you talk to a person, it's like, well, I've got to do these good works in order to be saved, or for God to love me. What, well, what, ask the question, what's a good work? Well, tithing, volunteering at church, helping out in the nursery, and things like that. Right. Those, well, technically, yeah, those can be good works. But you are so rich in them already. This teaches us to see them for what they are. So be great at it. Be great at it. And see, notice how this gives us the freedom to excel. Because the better we are now in the vocations we're in, the more we're serving our neighbor, and our neighbor is benefiting from our efforts. Right? This gives us a reason to become really good at what we do. Rather than demotivate, it motivates like you wouldn't believe. Now, one other thing. I wanted to show this from our Old Testament text. Leviticus 18, verses 1-5 through and the 19 starting at 9. This is a unified doctrine in Scripture. Don't think for a second what I've taught you is only how the New Testament teaches our good works. False. Leviticus 18, starting at verse 1. It's our Old Testament text. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh your God. Notice, these commandments are only given to those whom the Lord is already their God. These commandments are given to those who are already people whose Well, who Yahweh is their God. In other words, they're already saved. All of this presupposes faith in Yahweh, trust in His promises. Right? So the Old Testament doesn't teach you're saved by your works. New Testament says you're saved by by grace. No, absolutely not. Let me give you a cross-reference on this so you can see it. Exodus 20 speak these words saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let me ask you this. Knowing that the Old Testament is type and shadow is Yahweh your God. Has he brought you out of the land of Egypt? Yes, he has. Has he brought you out of the house of slavery? Yes, he has. Now what do we mean by that? Well, Egypt in the house of slavery is referring to the devil's system, the world, and slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Right? Those are type and shadow. And so notice, I am the Lord your God, I have brought you out. He's not saying I'm gonna bring you out. I have already. So notice here, even the Ten Commandments are given in the context of having already been set free from the devil and from slavery. Just like what Paul said. See the consistency? So now we can go back to our text. I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk. And there's that Hebrew word, halach. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules, keep my statutes, walk in them, conduct your life according to them. I am Yahweh, your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes, my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. Chapter 19, verse 9. I love this. I absolutely love this. Watch how love for neighbor sees need and jumps in. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor, for the sojourner. I am Yahweh, your God. Now notice, sojourner. People who are just passing through your territory, who aren't even Christians. You can say, the poor who are believers, the sojourner who isn't even a believer. All that's necessary is that they need this. They would die without it. So you have a right to harvest all of your field. I mean, granted, it's all yours. But don't for their sake. Now, there are a few farmers here in the congregation. They use combines now and things like that and harvesters. So this has become a little antiquated. So how do we as Christians, how do we do this now? Huh? You can do it in mission work, but another way. Take a part of your earnings. From your, from your personal budget. And you set it aside and you tag it. This is for somebody who needs it. And when you see that person who needs it, take the money out and give it to them and don't tell nobody, right? Just save out a part of what you earn. Not for you, but for that neighbor in need, whoever that is, when the time comes. And when you see that person, they come across your path. person who says, oh, my husband lost his job. We're not even able to pay our rent. We don't know what we're going to do. You say to that person, I know what you're going to do. You're going to pay your rent and you're going to buy some groceries. Here's some money. Right? They'll know we're Christians by our love. You shall not strip your... Vineyard bear. You shall not steal. Well, that goes without saying. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and profane the name of your God. When I used to own a marketing company, anytime I would get a check from a client that had an ichthus on it, I knew there was a greater than 60% chance that check was going to bounce. It's awful. It's just terrible. People using religious symbols and covering themselves in religious Christian symbols, and then they're dealing falsely with people. You don't do that. God specifically forbids that. You shall not oppress your neighbor. Don't rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. If you own a business and you hire a company to do work and they send you an invoice and it says net 15 on it, you pay it in 10 days. It says net 30, you pay it in 25. You make sure it gets to them on time. Because when you don't pay the people you are hiring, it puts them in financial distress. You're no longer serving your neighbor, you are serving yourself. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. What kind of cruelty is that, by the way? You shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You tell the truth regardless of whether or not the person is poor or rich. Someone's financial standing is no indicator as to how they are to be treated. Everyone is treated the same. The truth is spoken regardless of how great or ungreat somebody is. In righteousness you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall, not, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Totally different idea of good works taught in Scripture than what we would assume it to be. But I would tell you that's what love looks like in action. And that's what we're called to. Not in order to be saved because we are saved. We are to love others the way we have been loved. And how is it that we have been loved? Richly. Mercifully, compassionately, with grace and kindness and dignity. Now we are called; we are set free to now love our neighbors in that same way. And this is what Scripture teaches regarding our good works. So, what'd you think? Love to give your get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.